Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 11 from the book of John titled Feeding the 5,000, where we discuss John chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are moving to one of the more well-known uh, sections of Jesus' public ministry, and that is his feeding of the 5,000, mm. uh, which we believe is a miracle. It really happened. Uh, he really did make the bread multiply. But as we know, Jesus does uh, miracles that illustrate spiritual realities. Uh, what are we going to see here in this text, and what's the spiritual reality behind it? Yeah, what a great question. So let me just give you what I consider to be a big picture. First of all, the Gospel of John is written, it says at the end of John 20, so that by reading this account, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and have eternal life in his name. I think that a good four-part outline of the entire book is, first of all, the introduction and prologue from uh, John chapter 1, 1 through 18. And then you have Jesus' public ministry from John 1, 19 through the end of chapter 12. Then you have Jesus' private ministry to his own disciples. Um, and then you have the account of crucifixion and resurrection. Those are the four parts. Now, in the public ministry, it's, uh, John organizes it around seven miraculous signs and seven extended teachings. We just got done with one of the extended teachings in John 5 about testimonies to Jesus and all those sorts of things, and he mentions miracles. Now we have one of the miracle accounts. So there are seven miraculous accounts in John's gospel, and John cuts out so many other things that were covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. But this is one of the few miracles that's in all four of the gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And what we're going to find, as you yourself alluded to, is that Jesus' miracles both met a physical and actual physical need, but they also become lessons of spiritual reality as well. And Jesus himself is going to be lifting them up from an eating of the physical nature, the fleshly eating, to an eating of the spiritual nature later in this chapter. Yeah, so after the miracle, next podcast we'll talk about the extended teaching from John 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 24 from John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. 
But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So verse 1 sets up the setting. It says Jesus had gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, Tiberias, uh, the big lake uh, in, in the Jordan River. And it says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on those who were sick. Talk about Jesus' healing ministry and just what the impact was in the region of Galilee. Well, first of all, you just have to imagine that, um, as Satan himself said in reference to Job, you know, what will a man not give uh, for his skin and his flesh and bones and for his physical health? Uh, if people are in pain or if a loved one is in pain, uh, facing a dread illness, what will they not do to see somebody saved? And so we see that intensity, you know, even in John's gospel or with others as as fathers or mothers or, or, or friends are desperate to see their, their themselves healed or others healed. And so once it became obvious that there was nothing Jesus could not heal and he didn't charge anything, just did it for free and it was 100% effective, you can well imagine a huge crowd coming. Um, even if the people themselves had no, no healing needed just to see it, to see the spectacle of this this healing ministry. Now, I've thought before often about this and how amazing it would be to do that, but also how overwhelming. You know, the fact is the intensity and the passion was so great that they couldn't eat, they couldn't be alone. There was always a huge crush of people. One of the accounts, uh, some friends have to dig through a roof to even lower a uh, paralyzed man in front of Jesus. At one point, Jesus says to his disciples, come away by yourselves uh, for, for a while so they can be renewed. And so this is a kind of a retreat Jesus is going across. Also, if you put two and two together with the Synoptic Gospels, it seems that John the Baptist has just been executed. He's just been beheaded. And so Jesus just wants to be alone for a while uh, and get away from the crowds. And so he crosses over to be alone, to go on a mountainside and spend time in prayer and be refreshed because he's human too. He loved John. And it's just a picture of all the misery and the sufferings that come on prophets and on messengers of the word of God. And so he went uh, to be alone, but the crowds wouldn't let him. And so when he landed and saw them, he had tremendous compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless, it says in another account. So you just see the, the other-centeredness, the selflessness of Jesus to care for them. And if you're unfamiliar with the geography of Palestine, you know, Jesus, uh, I think the encounter we had before is uh, a lot of his big encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees are in Jerusalem, which is more, uh, which is a city, obviously, and, and right next to there, as you go toward the Jordan River, you get the wilderness. Uh, but then in the north in Galilee, if you want to picture it in your mind, you have these rolling hills, maybe it looks similar to Scotland, and you have these rolling hills and ample places for crowds to gather and teach. And so, and there's also these fishing villages around the sea. And so just picture in your mind, Jesus there, um, you know, sitting on a mountain. Sometimes he would get into a boat and push a little bit out from the lake and teach. And just imagine the crowds just amassing, coming from, there were, there's this place called the Decapolis. And a lot of times it would come from all the regions, um, from all these little villages, and they would come and they would amass and they would, they were, they wanted to see healings. They wanted to get healed. Absolutely. So that's where he is. Yeah, excellent setting of the of the scene. Now it says he went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
John gives us some background information. He says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then it says, Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming, he said to Philip, We're ready to buy bread. Why does John give us this Passover information? I've always scratched my head at this, why that's important to this narrative. Well, it's just amazing. I think uh, what it is is that he wants to invite his disciples into the works that he's doing. You know, later he's going to say in the same gospel, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends because everything I've learned from the Father I've made known to you. And so Jesus is involving them in the work. And so here's a problem. Where shall we get bread or buy bread? He even uses the word here, buy bread. For these to eat. So um, he wants them to think about it, to ponder the needs of the hungry people, to feel the weight of it, but he also wants them to feel their own inadequacy. They, they don't have the resources. They do not have the answer. They, they look inward and do not find the resources there, and that's exactly what he wants them to do. So there's two aspects here. Include them in the work, but then show them that they are not adequate for the work so that they learn to look upward to the Father. Hence, he was saying he was testing them. He's only <laughs> testing them. Now, I think, I think it's important for us to realize God does test us. You know, sometime later, he tested Abraham, saying, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering. I mean, the, I can't even imagine what Abraham must have felt when he was tested by God. God tests us. And so here, clearly, Jesus tests them. He orchestrates a scenario and puts them in a situation where they don't know what to do. And so we need to, to feel that God, you know, there's another account about uh, Hezekiah, how it says that God left him to test him to know what was in his heart. And so sometimes God does that. He left him in this sense, withdrew from him in some sense, so that he was on his own. Now, God never leaves us or forsakes us, but sometimes... You know, we, we have to make some decisions, and he, God, wants to see what we'll do. And so in this case, he tests his disciples to see what they'll do about this huge crowd and where they're going to buy enough food for them to eat. Yeah, and essentially they can't do anything. <laughs> There's nothing they can do. And I love how the, the account says he already knew what he was going to do. It's not like Jesus, like, gee, I don't know what to do. You know, it's like, like geez, can you give me some advice? Give me some, I don't know what to do. It's like, not that at all. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Yeah, this is pure speculation, but you have to wonder if sometimes the disciples' ministry with Jesus, not that they would ever think of themselves as peers, but, you know, oh, yeah, this is our ministry together. You know, it's like something like this uh, would just put them right back in their place. You know, I'm the master. You're the servant. You can do nothing apart from me. I love it. Everything flows from me. Uh, also, I think it's important to understand, again, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. If you look just all by itself at John 6, 6, um, what the text says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now stop. John, the Apostle John, is writing this decades later. John, Jesus is up in heaven. How does John know that he said this only to test them, for he already had in mind or knew what he was going to do? This could only have come, this insight from the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit of God. This is the essence of, of how we have a heavenly supernatural perspective, that heavenly, heavenly eye down on circumstances so we can be told Jesus had in mind already what he was going to do. Yeah. Um, basically, Andrew uh, says, there's a boy here with five loaves of bread and two fish. You know, So Jesus instructs him. He says, have the people sit down. What is the significance of the miracle he does here? I mean, it's it's an incredible miracle, but you know we've talked about the the significance. What's 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 significant about him making bread for the masses? So many ways I could answer that. Let's start with this. Um, Hebrews um, eleven says, "By faith we understand that the universe was created at God's command, 
so that what is formed was made was not made out of what could be seen, etc. So everything came ex nihilo or from nothing. Now in this particular case, it doesn't come from nothing. It comes from existing barley loaves, but this is a boy's lunch. So you'd imagine like dinner rolls, something small. He had five of them. So we'd imagine five big loaves, but you know, enough for a boy to have for lunch and two sardines or something like that. So where did the actual material come from that filled the stomachs of 5,000 men plus women and children? We're looking at 20,000, 30,000 people. I have no idea how many kids, but just huge quantity. Where did it all come from? He created it. He created it. Now you say he created it out of the barley loaves. Well, how is that? I mean, how, how does a barley loaf make another barley loaf? It, it, it just, Jesus multiplied them. He created barley loaves in the pattern of the existing um, loaves. Also keep in mind that this gives more indication of the creation of a mature universe, that God created a world ready for life. It didn't have to develop, can I say honestly, it didn't have to evolve. How do we get this out of this account? Well, these barley loaves came ready to eat. Well, a barley loaf, there are steps that go into making a loaf of bread. There's a grinding of the flour. There's a mixing of ingredients. There's a rising if it's leavened or, you know, let's imagine it's leavened, a time for it to rise so that there's air bubbles in it. Then there's a cooking and a cooling and then a serving. And then the fish, there's nothing other than the fish have to grow up and develop, but, you know, they generally don't eat raw fish, so there's broiling of it. It's all done. It just comes ready to eat. And so that, again, to me, points toward a universe that God created ready for life. And I might say, because of my, I'm a young earth creationist, that I might say, apparently old. So these, these barley loaves got into the hands, apparently having been around for a while. Fresh, yes, but having been cooked. Where did all that come from? Popped up out of nowhere, out of thin air. So it's quite remarkable. Now let's get to the, the point. They had an actual physical need. They were hungry. They might faint on the way when they were on the other side of the lake. So it was a real intense practical need. He had compassion on them and met the need. But later in this chapter, he's also going to point to spiritual feeding, which is the ultimate point. We concluded chapter five with Jesus saying that uh, Moses testified about Jesus. Yeah. Um, who was the last biblical character to bring the bread from well, heaven? Yeah, he's linking with Moses as the one who fed them with bread from heaven. And he's going to talk about that. Moses fed you and your stomachs were filled, but then your stomachs got emptied again. Um, so that's the very issue. He's going to feed them uh, f fundamentally, uh, ultimately with his, his, own, his own flesh, his death on the cross and his resurrection. So... It says, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And when I read the scripture, I tried to emphasize the prophet because they had an idea of who the prophet was. Who was that prophet that they think he is? Well, they're pointing back to a prediction made by Moses. Now, the whole office of prophet in the uh, life of the nation of Israel was established by Moses himself. When, the book of Deuteronomy makes this clear, the people asked that Moses go up and stand in the presence of God and hear his words and come down and relate them to them because they had heard God speaking from heaven and they were so terrified. It was so overwhelming and overpowering. What other nation has ever heard the voice of God speaking from heaven? And so they asked that they not hear the voice of God anymore, but rather uh, that Moses would go and stand in the presence of God and hear his voice and come down from the mountain and tell them, the people, 
what God had said. And God said, what they said is good. I wish they would always fear me like they do now. Well, what Moses said is God will raise up a prophet like me from among the people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Whoever does not listen to the prophet will be cut off from his people. Well, just in the same way as the Davidic kings came along, and there were many Davidic kings until the ultimate son of David came, Jesus. So also the office of prophet was filled again and again by other men, lesser men, but good men, godly men, who stood in the presence of God and heard God's words and spoke them to the people. Those were the prophets, my servants, the prophets. But the prophet was the ultimate one. And Hebrews 1 says very plainly, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, plural, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic office. He is the prophet who was to come. Mm. Amen. Verse 15 says that Jesus perceived they were going to take him by force to make him king. And so he withdraws to the mountain alone. So why were they going to make him king? Well, they wanted a king. They yearned for him. They wanted, definitely wanted the Romans thrown out. No doubt about it. I think every every red-blooded Jewish man, woman, and child wanted to run their own, be in their own country. But this was the times of the Gentiles ever since the exile of Babylon. It never ended. It's gone up really to this present day that, that there's still some Gentile domination in the promised land, in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's the times of the Gentiles. They have to reach their fulfillment. And so the Romans were to be there as a direct discipline and judgment on Israel for their centuries-old prior sins of violating the law of Moses. But they yearned for the Romans to be evicted, and they thought that Jesus uh, would be the powerful king who could rule the world, really. They didn't just want to rule Palestine. They wanted all the distant distant Gentile nations to come and, and grab, grasp, grasp the hem of the Jews and lick the boots of the son of David and all that. They wanted to be dominant. And so they, they wanted to seize Jesus and, and take control of the moment and make him king, like put him up on their shoulders and carry him aloft right into Jerusalem and set him on, on a throne right in the face of the, of the Romans and see what they could do about it. And uh, I think, you know, if he can, I mean, just the healing ministry alone would have done it because the Jews were good fighters, but they weren't perfect. But if you kill a guy and then he shows up an hour later in the same battle, it's like, I killed you. It's like, yeah, Jesus raised me from the dead. I'm right back here. It's like, that gets a little discouraging at that point. Eventually the Romans lose. So I don't know if they thought it through, but they said, surely this man is ready to be the king of the world. So they're going to take him by force out of God's timetable, apart from God's plans and purposes, and bring him to Jerusalem and make him king. Someday Jesus will reign in the new Jerusalem for all eternity. He is a king. He said it to Pilate, but he was not doing it at their timetable and not in the way they understood. Yeah, my kingdom is not of this world. That's it. And the servants would have been ready to fight for him, but Jesus, is, that's not what he wanted. And so they're going to seize him and take control. You don't take control of Jesus. He takes control of you. He's in charge. He's not along for the ride, but he is going to do what he wants to do. Yeah. So and lastly, we get to the account on the Sea of Galilee. Well, so the, uh, he sends the disciples down. It uh, seems he withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. You mentioned he probably wanted to be alone to maybe just think about John the Baptist and his passing. Um, he often would get some, some time away to pray, so he's probably praying. And he sends them across the sea, and it gets dark. And anybody who knows anything about the Sea of Galilee knows that just the way the, the geography and the winds flow, uh, very quick storms can whip up over that a really small lake. Disciples, they're just hard toiling against the wind 
And then they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. Let's just talk about Jesus' sovereignty over creation. You know, you, you mentioned earlier about creation, ex nihilo, and him making the bread. But this, just Jesus here, the way he walks on water, the way he calms storms, I mean, just sovereignty and power over everything. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, that's, that's where it's, it's very difficult to define a miracle, you know, because you, you tend to revert to language like the laws of nature and things that break the laws of nature. Honestly, God didn't give us the laws. He has certain patterns and we're very aware of them, but he doesn't submit to them. They submit to him. And so let's take buoyancy, for example. There are certain rules or laws of buoyancy. There are certain things that float, certain things that don't. All right, human beings kind of float sometimes. All right, like if your lungs are filled with water and all that, uh, we can swim, we can float. Um, some things just float and they just keep floating. Um, other things just don't float at all. They sink right to the bottom. Well, here's Jesus and, you know, buoyancy, you know, he would usually go mostly down and be submerged. You, you see people treading water and all that. And most of their bodies are below the surface. Jesus is walking right across the top. So in other words, the laws don't apply to him. He's in charge of them. And so uh, he's like kind of to some degree resisting gravity. He's, he's violating the laws of buoyancy. He's doing whatever he wants to do. He is the king. He's the king of heaven and earth. It reminds me of Jonah when, it's, when, when they're about to, uh, they're trying to find out who was responsible for the terrible storm that was coming up. And he said, who are you? And he said, I worship the God who made the sea and the earth and everything in them. It's like, and then they became terrified. He is the God of the sea. Jesus is the son of that God. He rules over the sea, rules over the land, rules over all things. Pretty awesome. So he comes and they're struggling. He says, "His eye, do not be afraid." They were very frightened. Some accounts, I don't think John says it, but some accounts said they thought they saw a ghost. It's a ghost, yeah. And uh, he said, "His eye, do not be afraid." And then, of course, another you know miracle. Immediately, the boat is where they're supposed to See, go. It, John's the only one that mentions that. You know, I don't know if it's a motorboat effect or a trans translation or transportation thing. I, I don't know what else to make of it. This is what the account says. And immediately, the boat re reached the shore where they were heading. So it's like, man, they had such a great time and they lost all track of time and they suddenly, I don't think so. I think it seemed to be a miracle of transportation. And suddenly they were there instantly. Jesus in the boat and they're there. Like, how did we get here? It's a miracle. Yeah. So John gives us some more just details about the crowds following Jesus. He says that, um, it's very interesting. He basically explains their thought process. They they see that there was only one boat there and the disciples were, were the ones who got into the boat. And that Jesus had gone alone. And then uh, they're wondering where he went. And then the other boats come. So they, they decide to follow the disciples on the other side. And they're actually very surprised when they see Jesus on the other side. We'll talk about that next week. They said, Rabbi, where did you get here? You know, so let's let's talk about um, just why John gives us these details of the crowds following Jesus. Well, you know, we just have to realize, I mean, there is no religion in the world for which history is as important as Christianity. And so you just read these accounts. I mean, they're all woven into history. Like, look at how this one began. Um, you know, it was he crossed the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. So we have two proper nouns with the same body of water. Because um, of the emperor Tiberius. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The, the Jewish Passover was near. He's, he's got it nailed in space and time. This is a real miracle that actually occurred in space and time. So the crowds, they were on one side. How did they get together? He actually gives us some words to that. So I think what it means is there's a, a, an intense reality to all of this. It isn't a myth. It, it actually is nailed down in a certain time, in a certain nation, in a certain moment of history, these things really happen. The conversation that fills up the rest of John 6, 
that we're going to study God willing next time, that had a setting, it had an occasion. And that's why he gives us these details. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about this section? Yeah, one thing. I think we need to realize there's an intentionality in everything that happens on planet Earth. And the fact of the matter is that, that no one need ever die from starvation. God could turn the stones around starving people instantly into bread if he wanted to. We should also realize in the natural providence of things, there's more than enough food on planet Earth. We need to understand that God is sovereign over everything, over the food, over the water, over everything on planet Earth. He rules over all things for his own purpose and in his own glory. And so these miracles show us that. He's in charge of the food. He's in charge of the weather, everything. Well, that was episode 11 of the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 12, titled, I am the bread of life. Hint, the theme of bread keeps going, where we discuss John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51. Thank you so much for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. If you have benefited from this podcast and you would like to support the ministry, please go to twojourneys.org slash donate. We would greatly appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.